Hello everybody, welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast. Today we've got a very special episode with UFC Performance Institute Vice President of Performance, Dr. Duncan French. Now we're going to speak to Duncan about a range of different subjects and topics around his role at the UFCPI, which includes the launch of the uh, Shanghai facility, and also how the UFC is adapting to lockdown. You know, UFC have been the first a main sporting organisation to be putting back on live events. So we want to know what are the challenges with training, with testing, to make sure that the athletes are safe and everybody else is safe as well. Before we get into this episode, I'd just like to mention, if you're not already a subscriber yet, please hit the subscribe button. And also, on the Boxing Science membership, we have a range of different uh, workshops that can explain more about the training methods of the UFC Performance Institute. This is delivered by Duncan himself and strength and conditioning coach, Bo Sandoval. So if you want to know about the, the training, the testing and the research methods that the UFC Performance Institute are uh, currently doing uh, in the sport of MMA, then you can access this on the Boxing Science membership. It's a seven day free trial and it's just £8.99 a month after that. Okay, so let's get on with uh, this episode with Dr. Duncan French of the UFC Performance Institute. Uh, welcome everybody to this episode. I'm joined by Dr. Alan Ruddock. Alan, how are you? Very good, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Very excited for this episode because we're also joined by the UFC Vice President of Performance, Dr. Duncan French. How are you doing, Duncan? Hi boys, how are you going? It's good to, good to hear from you and see you. Yeah, good stuff. How's uh, how's lockdown been? Have you been able to have a little bit of rest? Obviously, it's got really busy now. Uh, how's it been generally for you? Obviously, you know, we're yeah. in Wakefield and Sheffield. Um, <laughs> it's normally quiet around here, but I, I expect the hustle and bustle of Las Vegas it being very, very different. Yeah, and that was yeah, like everyone, it's you know, quarantine's been been a strange time, but um, you know, just going down the strip and seeing, you know, the casinos closed and you know, none of the flashing lights here in Vegas, it was it's fascinating. It's been like a ghost town. So yeah, really strange. But I mean, listen, from from a personal perspective, um it took me about two weeks at home to kind of get into a routine and a cadence. I was all over the show, right? You normally come to work, you're pretty you know, pretty on point and um it definitely took me a while to figure out what's this new new approach. Um, but after that, I got into a pretty good routine. You know, I set up my days, put structure to my days. I was working out, you know, two, three times a day around kind of work. So I actually found it, you know, found it quite good. It was it was refreshing for me. Obviously, I was around the family as well, which was nice. Bit of a challenge because obviously the, the three-year-old sees his daddy at home and thinks it's playtime, whereas normally I'm at work. So... That was a challenge, but um, yeah, it's it's been it's been tough because it's monotony, right? And it's you know we're social animals. We want to interact with people, and uh, just being stuck at home without your athletes around you, without talking to your colleagues and stuff, it, it was certainly weird. And uh, yeah, a bit zoomed out, and uh, you know everyone's doing video calls and all that type of stuff. So pleased to be back into you know some amount of routine here at the PI. Yeah, can definitely resonate with you there. Um, reason why we got into strength and conditioning in the first place is because. We like being in the gym, we like working with athletes and, uh, you know, that day-to-day kind of social activity. You know, that's my main kind of social life, really, seeing the boxers and having a laugh with them. Right. Um, so, obviously, it's your first time on the Boxing Science podcast, but 
you've been on, uh, you know, a couple of combat conditioning online conferences. Obviously, you've got your workshop on the Boxing Science membership. So a lot of the Boxing Science audience will know who you are. For those minority who don't, could you give yourself a, a quick quick fire introduction to yourself, uh, what your role is and what that uh, requires on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so like you said at the end of the conversation, I'm the Vice President of Performance at the UFC Performance Institute. Um, the headquarters of the UFC is here in Las Vegas, although we also have a, a facility over in Shanghai, China. So it's a, it's truly a global infrastructure now that I kind of manage and coordinate. And uh, yeah, that, that role and responsibility and encompasses a variety of things. But largely what I say, uh, we have a global roster of about 600 fighters um, and any interface with those fighters from a health, well-being or performance perspective largely comes under my my remit. So I manage a team of 18 here, 18 performance staff here in Vegas. I think it's uh, 16 um, in China. Um, so yeah, it's uh, kind of coordinating, managing the strategy, the philosophy, interrogating our services, how we're going to operate and deliver everything from nutrition to strength and conditioning to psychology to medical services, etc. So um, yeah, really exciting role and um, it's, it's going super well. I'm excited. Right, that Duncan, that overview there, that general overview that that you gave of of your role at, at the UFC, um, really leads me into my first question. Because a few days ago, you you I think it was on Instagram, you had a, a social media post, and you and you talked in the the caption. I think it was about a book about being a general specialist. And I, I've, I've, I've seen you from afar doing lots of different roles and, and having lots of, you know, lots of different interests over the years. Um, but can you explain in, in a bit of detail what do you mean by a, a general specialist? And, and do you think practitioners should work towards being a, a general specialist? Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, thanks for following my social media, Alan. You're a legend. You might be. <laughs> I give you props for that. No, I mean, I'm not. I, I, I put a post up, yeah, because I was reading a book called Peak by Dr. Mark Bubbs, and it was just talking about kind of, um, you know, general experts. And something which I've always kind of felt a little bit, not ashamed about, but, you know, people celebrate that I'm, you know, coach X or I'm nutritionist Y or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm put myself as an expert in a particular box. And over my years of, throughout my career, of, you know, my, my background is, you know, initially as a sports scientist, and then I moved very much into coaching. I became a strength and conditioning coach for a long time. Um, but also I'd kind of always had this kind of sports science and academic side ticking along beside my coaching. So, you know, we live in a, you know, in a reductionist world, I think, in sports performance. We're always looking for the minutiae, the net, like the, the finite item that is something that we can regulate, upregulate, downregulate, control, you know, change to, to optimize performance. And I think we get stuck in this reductionist world. Um, we also really want to define ourselves, as I say, like, like, like a coach. And when I look at sport, I find it impossible to take one domain, one technical area, let's take, you know, medical rehabilitation, I find it impossible to look at how you do medical, you know, a rehabilitation of an athlete from an injury without considering the role of inflammation and how we know nutrition can affect inflammation or, you know, that end stage rehab that the S&C coach needs to come in board with, the psychology of what the athlete is going through at that moment in time when they've been removed from training and competition. Like, 
the more you look at it, the more I look at it, you just, I find it impossible to, to, to segregate and silo the technical areas and technical domains of, a, of an organism that is so like inter, interactive. So, you know, that's what I mean. And, and, and by talking about myself as a specialist generalist is, yeah, I've been a strength coach and, you know, I still consider myself a strength coach, but by having an insight and starting to understand pieces of other technical areas, I find it a, a real weapon to my arsenal to certainly in the role that I'm in right now, where I'm managing a performance structure to be able to have powerful conversations across the board and to be able to say, I'm not just sitting in an S and C domain talking about sets, reps, recovery frequencies. I'm pulling in, you know, how my nutritionist is going to fuel that. I'm going to pull in how my medical um, personnel is going to help me minimize some of those pre-existing um, injury risk factors, you know, from posture. What you know, We work with combat fighters. Posture is a massive thing, and we know that that has got chronic issues over time. So that's kind of where I'm coming from now. And, you know, as I'm a bit older in my career, I'm a bit more co confident and comfortable to say, Actually, I don't just need to be a strength coach. Listen, I'm, I want to be the best strength coach and sports scientist. I can be. Trust me, I'm trying to dominate that industry and, and be seen as someone that's really, really good at what I do. But I'm also comfortable in saying, actually, let, let's take a broader look at this thing because it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's, it's very easy to be dichotomous, isn't it? Very easy to look at black and white. Very easy to sit in one camp or the other or be on one side of, of the pendulum at at one particular time but communication and integration uh, and working interdisciplinary is really important especially at, at, at the top top level mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and, and and like i say it's almost it's almost dirty saying oh you know i'm a generalist i, I look at everything because people want to in, in the world we live in um every I know it's human nature trying trying to separate yourself from the crowd. So if you're if you're a strength coach, you want to be the man. You want to be the alpha strength coach, right? But sometimes I'm happy just being kind of middle of the pack, but having more strings to my bow. You know, what I mean, I feel like in the world of problem solving, which is what sports performance is, every athlete is a athletic problem that you're trying to figure out. The more ways I can solve that problem the more likelihood is I'm going to be able to influence it. If I've only got one equation that I can solve the problem with, and that's strength and conditioning, then I'm, I'm kind of stuck there, you know? So again, that comes back to, to some of my time back in the Ings Institute and some of the philosophical stuff we talked about there. Um, but uh, definitely looking at it as a problem solving aspect where you need to be able to create different approaches to solving the same problem. Yeah, absolutely. So like, I can definitely resonate with that, Duncan, being obviously a strength and conditioning coach in boxing. Um, you know, they take a lot of confidence and a lot of priority into their conditioning methods. Now I'm the kind of the front line of developing that program and delivering it. Whereas like Alan's the physiologist, if I didn't have if I just depended on Alan's knowledge all the time, I'd like be literally there'd be two strands of like conversation rather than kind of like, right, I've took I've I've increase my knowledge in this area i'm now able to program if we've got like specific issues then i'd go to alan for that so i can definitely uh, resonate with that you just need to try and especially when you're working as part of a team then you can have some understanding of where that person where that practitioner is coming from when they're having to deal with a certain issue um we just talked about lockdown 
Um, obviously, it's affected all live sports, but the UFC have been the standout sport. That's uh, you know, I don't know whether there has been another sport that's come back, but it is a main sport that has come back. Now, what are the key like kind of testing and safety methods that the UFC put in place to put them uh, live events on? Yeah, I mean, listen, we, we take uh, the lead from our president, Dana White, who, as you all know, is, is you know, is, is very gung-ho and, and, and wants to blaze a trail. So, you know, it's the nature of the UFC as a company is, we're, you know, we're, we're disruptors. We want to do things and want to get things going. And the, the fans are crying out for, for live events and live sports, you know what I mean? So it's... Um, it's, we've got fighters that need to earn a, a living and, and need to fulfill contracts and those types of things. So it's really been interesting. Um, and, you know, we're very proud about what we've achieved by being the first, you know, world sport back on fully operational. And of course, you know, there's been a lot of considerations, weeks and weeks and weeks of planning around, um, you know, strategy and operational procedures to minimize the risk of, you know, um, infection, which is, you know, when you look at, um, putting on a UFC event and a fight event, it, there's so much that goes into it. You know, normally there's about 300 staff on the ground at an event. I think we stripped that back to about 140. So, you know, skeleton staff minimizing social distancing, even talking about warm up rooms and how you, you know, how you take the different teams. And, you know, normally we, we'll pair teams up, but, you know, it's individual rooms, how many, you know, um, corners you can have. All the corners are wearing masks throughout the whole kind of event. The only people that are not wearing PPE is, you know, two fighters and a referee. Um, you know, we've looked at um, medical grade air filters. Um, every athlete on fight week um, goes through a, you know, a, an antigen test for COVID-19. Um, and they go into quarantine before, you know, from having the test to before they get the results, they have to remain in quarantine. Um, i.e. in their hotel rooms. And when they get a negative test back, then they're allowed into kind of the bubble that we've created at the event um, hotel. Um, well, that means that then our nutrition team have to deliver food. So, you know, we've got guys that are obviously trying to make weight descents and weight cuts. And, you know, how do you do that in a hotel room when you can't necessarily get out and do your, you know, get your, get your sweat on. And um, so, you know, a lot of meal delivery strategy, how we've done that. Um, obviously the, the traffic flow through different facilities and distancing and all this type of stuff. So it's been, uh, it's been really unique. Um, I think, you know, one thing that's helped us is we're an individual sport. Um, you know, I've spoken to colleagues in the NFL and in the Premier League um, about, you know, what they're trying to do with, with high, high groups of, of players um, and just getting them through workouts and things like that. And I don't envy them, to be honest with you. You know, if you think about... You know, 80 players going on a on an NFL team trying to do the same workout. I mean, just the management of that alone is a logistical nightmare. So for us, it's been a little bit better. The challenge has been, you know, different people from coming from all over America. You know, you don't know the background where they're coming from. So yeah, just managing the barriers of protection and and, and the disinfectant between between bouts of the octagon and those types of things um, has been a massive kind of operational change for us. But Touchwood, so far it's gone real well. And we even had, um, you know, three positive cases of, of coronavirus on our very first event that we put on in Jacksonville um, two yeah. weeks ago now. Uh, one fighter and two of his cornermen. So it really pressure tested the system on day one. And um, yeah, it, it responded pretty well. <laughs>
That's fantastic. It's really ins- inspiring to see, you know, that that drive from uh, from the UFC. Just seeing that Dana's done a, a podcast with Eddie Earn and he's yeah. given him full of inspiration, saying that you can do it. You know, we've shown that you can do it. So it's good. That you... in a castle, isn't he, or something? Pardon? You put on a fight in a castle courtyard or something, Eddie? Yeah. Earn? So he's doing uh, basically a matchroom boxing HQ, which used to actually be his house, what he grew up in. So the the term is. Uh, Fighting in Eddie Eddie Earn's back garden, right? Nice. Uh, we we've got a we've got a fighter Jordan Gill that uh, is looking to be on one of them cards, and the the main challenge for him is that the date keeps changing. Yeah. So it's been very kind of challenging for for myself to be putting that program in place and like how long the phases are going to be. Uh, with with yourself, Duncan, what has been the main challenges training wise in terms of the athletes? Um, short training camps, changes of dates. Um, I saw, I, I don't know whether I can pronounce his name right, is it Glover Teixeira? Is that right? Or have yeah. I butchered his name? Teixeira. Teixeira, okay. Yeah. Oh, close, oh, close. Um, you know, he spoke volumes of like kind of the nutrition. Um, I, I suppose like weight making is a, is a massive challenge when they've been in lockdown. Um, what were the key methods that you put in place and what kind of levels of communication did you have with the athletes? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the, the first thing I'll say is that um, the psychological piece of it has been the biggest piece for our interaction with fighters. You know, anxiety. You know, I'm, I'm a training enough. I've not, you know, I've not had a proper camp. My camp looks different. I've been working out in my garage. Um, you know, I've not got as many looks with training partners because I can't, you know, social distancing means I can't bring you know, my normal looks that I would bring in and I'd have six training partners and I've only been allowed to have two, you know. Um, so th- all those kind of human factors have been the biggest thing that, that has become apparent is just anxiety and routine from a change from the norm. Like how, how do you manage fighters and, and their mindset? Because obviously we know fighter mindset is, is a massive part of what we deal with. So, you know, we've, we've navigated through that collectively as a group you know um i guess what you know messaging is everyone's been in the same boat largely you know no one's had a perfect camp um and then yeah we've we do a lot of stuff remotely anyway um normally um but again we've had to magnify that and maximize that impact through you know meal delivery um strategies with our dietitians um where we're really handling the you know mailing out meals um looking at remote programming from an S&C perspective and really working with, you know, the, the fighter and their, their coach to understand what have they got access to, you know, how are we going to get through some, some conditioning work? Is there a need for strength power work or is it more just maintenance? Can, can, can we get by? Can we, can we maintain? And I think that's kind of not a conversation that you often have. You, you're always talking about maximizing where actually it might have been right. We've, we've got to be efficient with understanding where we can get some wins and gains and something where if we do some body weight circuits or you've got these three kettlebells, you know, like yourself out in the backyard, Dan, yeah. uh, you know, what, what are we doing that we're comfortable? It's just maintaining what we already had. You know, there's a certain amount of maintenance work that, that, that has to be done. So it's been, it's been unique. I mean, from our staff's perspective, really challenging just because it's everything's sending out information, jumping on calls, trying to manage the process from afar is, 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 a, is a task in itself. Um, but yeah, when, when you look at people like Glover making you know, nice comments like that, 
it just goes to show that the reassurance of putting professionals and experts around, you know, a fighter um, gives them that confidence that, all right, I'm, I'm within these crazy circumstances, I'm doing the best I can. I'm maximizing all the, all the aspects and I'm ticking the boxes. Um, so that, that, that's been really interesting. Again, it's been another stress test for our team um, and every fighter has been in different circumstances, but I think, I think we've done a pretty decent job, you know, everything from, giving out equipment to uh, from the PI here in Vegas to our local fighters. I mean, we, we blitzed the weight room and all the equipment. We, we were driving around in vans and pickups and dropping it off in people's garages and stuff. So everything from that through to, all right, how do we then speak to someone in New York or Florida or you know, figure out what they're doing and, and what can they get access to, whether it's out in the open or whether it's kind of in the house or apartment. Yeah, we speak about uh, optimization a lot and not just optimization in terms of programming or physiological adaptations, but optimizing in terms of logistics and resources and all the different constraints that, that come with, with a program. And we, we try and optimize every single opportunity. And that's what everyone has been trying to do in, in these times. And no matter whether it's, you know, the, the equipment um, that you've got available to do some, some S and C or the field that you've got to do some, some running on, you know, Danny's done a great job in, in trying to optimize in all our, all our guys' training. You make a great point, Alan, because if you think about it, this might be the only time when people are truly coming from the same base level, right? Normally, some people have got like a gym that they work out with, a ton of strength and conditioning equipment and, and access to that, whereas someone else just might be you know, hitting bags in the garage or whatever it may be. Whereas this time, everyone's back down to baseline. And to get in this scenario and what we've been messaging is you're going to get competitive advantage by being logistically efficient and optimizing the domain that you're in, the environment that you're in. And I think that that never happens. Like, you know, if you think of all the other sports as well, you know, every Premier League team or every, you know, NFL team or every baseball team out there, they're all at the same level. So the teams this season that are going to be the ones that are successful are the ones that have adapted and optimize the limitations of quarantine and COVID environment, right? So that's a fascinating way to look back at, all right, did we optimize and maximize the potential? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, definitely agree with that. And I think that fighters that have got a team in place appreciate their team even more now when, you know, it's, it's great when all things are going good, but when, you know, shit, it's a fan, you know, how are you going to adapt? And this is where you tap into experts because probably if we, we give 100% our best, but I think we only give the, the fighters probably about 30% of what we can do, 40% of what we can do in terms of like in the weight room. Uh, but then you kind of tap into that extra 15, 60% when, kind of, when it's not so good. You know, it's easy to get somebody squatting well, yeah. benching heavy, but what happens if there's an injury, uh, there's niggle and you've got to work around it? What happens if the sparring loads go too high and you've got a deload? I think in, in this time, it's great to have a team around you that can adapt around the, the situation. Well, um, some things about like combat sport athletes, because everyone thinks, you know, combat sport's an individual sport and you're just smashing out on your own. But 
Mm. Training partners, sparring partners, uh, like are a massive part. Getting different looks of your next potential opponent and someone mocking that up and simulating it is, is a huge part. Now, if social distancing is causing you to, you can't be close to people. And, you know, if you think about our sport in particular, mm. you know, you need looks for jujitsu, you need looks for wrestling, you need looks for striking and Muay Thai and kickboxing. You need loads of different sparring partners and training partners. If that's removed, it's like, Holy shit! You know, I can only do so many squats, Dan, and then you know the technical stuff is is really starting to suffer. Exactly. So it's been uh, probably about two years since we caught up and we did did our interview uh, for for YouTube. Uh, at that point, the UFC Performance Institute were just around about one year in, and I think you said that you were had uh, around about twenty percent, thirty percent of the fighters come through. Performance Institute, either for like some sort of training or testing. Um, what are the current like figures at the moment? What's the progress being made? Are more teams and athletes being more open to be working at the institute? Yeah, I mean, I think back to that first year, and it was a little bit chaotic. Do you know what I mean? We we, yeah. we were a new kid on the block. We didn't really know what it was going to be or or how it would go. But um, yeah, I mean, in three years, we've made great strides and you know really excited about where we've got to we've, we've got a global roster on the ufc of about 600 we've worked well over 520 of those fighters so you know we, we're up in the 90 percent of the roster have actually come and worked with us here at the at the ufc now on a monthly basis we're, we're directly programming and supporting about 175 fighters um wow. on the roster um some are obviously off camp some are moving towards fights and in camp so um yeah, those numbers are exciting. And what we want to obviously try and do is maximize the retention. We don't just want someone to fly in from Brazil or whatever it may be and spend a, you know, two weeks with us and then go back to Brazil and nothing happens. It's like we're trying to influence behaviors and cultures across time. So the retention of how we get them to come back and revisit us or how we work with them remotely um, is a huge part of our strategy. But yeah, we're, we're massively excited about where we've got to. Um, and the fight, you know, the fighters on the roster see the the Performance Institute as a resource right now, um, and and that's been fantastic. You know, there's a trust and a relationship, and also an awareness of what it what is it. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. in the UFC and MMA prior to the PI, there was very little high performance kind of infrastructure. Um, now we've got you know medical staff and nutritionists at events throughout fight week managing you know, full cuts and, and, and feeding throughout the whole fight week. We've got, you know, remote programming going on around the world where we can look at diagnostics and monitoring data coming into our clouds and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's on many different levels and it's, uh, it's really exciting to see how the, the fighters, you know, appreciate, you know, coming back to Glover, you know, they see the value of it. And it's still an a la carte service, right? It, it, it's still not one size fits all. We're, we're very custom in what we do. Somebody might just want nutritional or dietary intervention support. And that, that might be the only part of our service that we offer them. Somebody else over here might want the full kind of kitchen sink and everything. So it's very custom. It's very bespoke. Um, but that's why it works because, you know, people might have their own strength coaches. They might, you know, be comfortable with that piece, but they might need some medical advice. And then, you know, we can bolt in or plug that hole in their kind of portfolio. So um, it's, it's kind of the cross we bear is that everything's very fluid and custom, but also that's why it works for the, for the fighters because they can pick and choose the extent to which they, they need our services. 
that's that's great you, you mentioned like trust and relationships and, and awareness there and clearly that's that's all those factors are, are helping with that retention strategy have you found anything that works exceptionally well apart from being fluid and, and customized and and working on a one-to-one basis i mean you, you mentioned that um some of the guys might be coming in for diet but then you do a really good job with the guys that come in for diet and then they go out oh, well actually we want a little bit of of, of S&C or we want a little bit of medical support and things like that. Have you found, have you found anything that, that stands out from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, you, you've just nailed it, Alan, right? So I think, you know, you answered the, your own question. Um, in, in as much as, yeah, we, we align our services on an individual level. So if you look at combat sports and your, you know, your boxes, um, in individual sports, you, people often are looking for, like, how do I differentiate myself from the crowd? What am I doing differently? How, how am I getting competitive advantage? Now, that can take it one or two ways. It can go down a rabbit hole of thinking they're doing things differently, and it can be absolute garbage. Mm. Or they can actually try and find competitive advantage and separate themselves from the crowd by doing things that are really valuable to them. So what we try and do is, is the latter. And customize all of our messaging and say, listen, we're not creating, you know, cookie cutter programming. We're going to look at you. We're going to monitor and analyze your physiology. And then we're going to decide strategically what we're doing for you. This, this is purely custom. There's, there's no one else in the UFC getting the same approach and the same strategy as you are. And this person over here, they're getting a different strategy. So that immediately starts to say, oh, it's for the athlete hold on, this, this, is, this is about me. This is an individual thing because otherwise if I go to a gym and I go to a pro practice with 30 other fighters and we're doing the same 90-minute practice, everyone's working the same practice, but those guys that might be in camp and working to a fight are going to be the priority guys. And if you're off camp, you're going to be just a training body, right? Whereas now it's like, it's you, it's you, it's you, regardless of whether you're in camp, off camp, whatever. We're aligning all of our services to you. That, that's massive for buying engagement and buying. Now, obviously, you've got to do the legwork of trust and, and, and continuing to build relationships and positivity and connection. That's the human element. That's a given as a coach. You know, the, you, you've got to do the hard yards to build the relationship. But, yeah, the, 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 once you've got them bought into a particular way of we can connect and intentionally improve you, then, yeah, we can open up our menu and say, hey, you're working with our S&C coaches right now, but coming back to one of my earlier comments, if we bring on the nutritionist on board, we're going we're gonna to potentiate, we're going to you know, supersede where we would got to if we just engage with S&C. So are you open to having a chat with a dietitian about you know, fueling these S&C sessions? And then you can start opening up the bigger portfolio. So, yeah, it's... Um, it starts with customization, but then, you know, it's, it's about customization on many levels with different discussions, like I say, around athletic performance and all the different attributes you need to address. And do you find that that model that you've got in Vegas still works in, in Shanghai? I, I assume there's more, more barriers to perhaps knowledge transfer with English speaking um, practitioners that, that are working with there and the, the Asian athletes, do you, do you find there's any barriers in Shanghai to that particular way of working? Uh, yes and no. I mean, obviously, we've got Chinese staff and we've got Westernized staff in, in Shanghai. And we, we're also got, we also have all the MMA staff. Like, so the coaches, we've got technical, we employ the technical coaches there, which is we, we don't have that here in Vegas, right? So it's a true high performance team in Shanghai around 
about 36 different individual fighters. There's obviously massive cultural barriers and there's massive, not barriers, but differences. Um, and there's massive language barriers for our Western staff. But, you know, we use our Chinese staff um, for translation purposes. But again, from the outset of building Shanghai, it was around, it was always about, we can't just, we can't just take what we've got in, in Vegas and put it in Shanghai because culturally their approach is different. The, the Chinese way of training is different. The Chinese mentality of rigidity and, and, and routine and um, a hierarchical approach to authority, all this stuff, you know, in Western world, you, you don't have the same kind of mentality. So we went into that knowing that we've got to get the cultural piece right. We've got to be able to get athletes to buy in culturally to so it can't be a million miles from what they're used to because they'll just get turned off by that. So yeah, Shanghai was an interesting project and I think we're still doing a decent job of it, but you know, a lot of educational lectures and presentations that have to go from English to Chinese and are things lost in translation or, or what, but you know, we've got Chinese staff that speak English and we can upskill them in terms of the specific messaging, the physiology that, you know, what are we trying to get to? And then they can message it accurately rather than just using a generic Chinese translator who's not a specialist in you know, nutrition or S&C. Um, that's critical. But um, yeah, you, you make a good point that we had to think really about the behavioral side of things, not just, all right, let's roll out a, tra a training plan. And because you, were, because you were thinking about that, the behavioral aspects and the, and the language, did, did the, the, do the goals and objectives of the Shanghai center differ to, to the Vegas center in terms of maybe performance and development? Um, they're doing the don't. I mean, it's not like we're writing the KPIs and objectives around, are we doing a good job of getting them to educate and understand what we're trying to do? The, the KPIs at China, probably more so than here in Vegas, are about winning and success. Because what, that's a talent pathway, right? So what we want to do is, is from that academy, pull them into the big UFC. Um, now, that is about numbers. That's a numbers game. Absolutely. It's a talent pathway. So some of the KPIs in China are a little bit more black and white of we, we would like X amount of or X percentage of you know, athletes graduating from the academy into the UFC. So you know, that puts the staff under, over there under, under the spotlight a little bit to try and be successful. Well, we've employed staff that can be super creative and, and we've got confidence that will navigate around the cultural and ethnical and language barriers um, and find creative ways to do it. The, but the, the objectives remain the same. It's about creating winners in the UFC. It's about creating exciting fighters that have got some resilience and can fight at the highest level um, and they're entertaining for fans. And along the way, we want to also collect and aggregate insights that we can share with the with the global combat community to to, to you know, demonstrate new, new knowledge new insights you know what what we're finding with mma fighters cool. all, all the stuff that you've said duncan is it seems like a very athlete-centered approach i wondered whether you've uh, kind of explored into like coach edu education as in like the the teams of the athletes as well yeah, so I mean, crystal ball stuff here now, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we're, we're big believers in, in you know, you got to influence the influencers, right? Mm. And you know, we can have an athlete that potentially comes to Vegas and spends some time with us or goes to our academy in Shanghai, 
really enjoys what they're doing, sees in, you know, benefit to it, then goes back to their camp and the, the, the coach has not been with them and they, they go back to the same kind of routine and same stuff that they've always been doing. So it's counterproductive. So we've got to get to the influencers. And it's usually the coach stuff, right? Yeah. We've done that to some extent um, through, you know, coach summits here in Vegas, you know, through you know, the journal and stuff like that. We, we realize we've got to expand that massively. So moving forwards here from 20 to you know, 2020, 2023, we've just reset some of our targets and our goals and our objectives. Educational outreach um, is, is a massive kind of strategy for us moving forward digitally. Um, how can we connect with those coaches? With, you know, how can we upskill them around fundament, what we would consider fundamental performance theory that they might need some some insight to. How can we accredit that? How can we make it um, something that has got a, a badge of honour attached to it to have that level of, of expertise? So you know, if you w- watch out here online, you know, online for for the coming months and years. But you know, it's a, it's a massive movement and a new arm of our business model that we're going to be uh, working on here um, through the PI. Absolutely, I think we're at Boxing Science. We we discovered that within like probably the first couple of years of like the boxers do what the coaches tell them. So mm-hmm. for us to have that impact on, on strength conditioning, sports science, we need to find a way to educate the coaches. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of boxing coaches now are now conforming and being more open to strength and conditioning, but it really relies in the coach because obviously you've got 600 different athletes all over the world. And you need to have that remote access, that remote support, and you know you see, like you say, you're seeing them uh, like for a set amount of time in in Vegas, and then they go off, and ninety percent of the time they spend with their teams, um, they'll be looking direct for for their kind of support. I think uh, a key thing that you have done really well with the uh, with the uh, UFCPI is the uh, cross sectional analysis. Um, that's a fantastic resource for coaches and for athletes too. Um, seeing that and knowing kind of how much hard work would go into something like that. It's yeah. really inspiring to see. Um, first of all, how did you go about orchestrating, collecting all that data, being able to analyze it too? Yeah. Well, thanks for the kind words, Dan. Obviously yeah. we appreciate it. Um, and like I say, we've got a second journal dropping soon here at the end of summer. Wow. So watch out for that. Um, it's going to be two times the size of the previous one. Um, it's also going to be, you know, a largely digital access as well. Um, I know the first one kind of went a bit viral as a PDF document, but this is going to be very much open access, um, interactive on online, and so a bit of a different format. But it's still our our second journal. So a lot of updated theory, data, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But coming back to your question, yeah, I mean, we always had the ambition to stay kind of quiet quiet for the first year. We, we, we you know, you can't swing your nuts after three months of just working in a, in a new sport and say, you yeah. know, everything about it. So one of the great things that we can do here at the Performance Institute, because we work across the whole roster, is aggregate cross-sectional data, you know. Now, we're not telling any other fighter what a specific fighter's another fighter's data looks like but if we pull all that data we can start to get real cross-sectional awareness in a weight class or across a female division or a male division and um, that that is the is the power of our data 
and nobody else can do that right because no one else has access to the statistical numbers that we can really do you know good analytics on it so that that immediately was something we say well we've got to get this out to the guys because it's going to help them make better informed decisions you know if you know what your weight class looks like in a performance attribute or a conditioning attribute or if we know what the the top five kpis for each weight class are from a fight success perspective that that's the type of conversation that we should be having at the highest level in any sport you know what are the determinants of success and what's the gap analysis from success and where i am as a fighter or as an athlete so that's what we that's what we did we said we're going to reverse engineer the sport we're going to figure out as much as we can around competition we're going to share that we're going to do some internal analytics. You know, we, we, we have a company called 3027 that does all the coding, all the statistics of about 167 different stats for every, every fight. Now they're open access online, but we took them and then we put them through our own analytics in terms of, all right, can we look at the KPIs that, you know, is it, you know, the UFC is largely a striking sport right now um, based on, you know, how we look at the key performance indicators for each weight class, but a lot of the rules and how the judges are seeing it is things like takedowns and time in top control and, and those types of things. So there's a little bit of a paradox there. That's kind of fascinating. Like, what do you do with that? What does the coach do with that technically and tactically? Um, so those types of conversations overlaid with obviously the data that we were then starting to aggregate just here in the PI with our testing and monitoring and assessment, you know, a pretty robust strength power profile, a pretty robust ESD profile some longitudinal monitoring characteristics in, in terms of wellness and readiness. So they then overlay that with the fight statistics. And now you've got, you know, a pretty powerful conversation starter that someone can map themselves against, you know, to, to, I don't know that there's any other league. Let's take, you know, the premier league. You yeah. can't, it, nowhere is every central midfielder in the premier league being assessed and monitored and tested and you put all that information together and now the central midfielder at Liverpool can see how they compare against every other central midfielder in the, in the Premier League. They, they, can, they can try to do some of it through video analytics, but you can't get down to their truest awareness of what their VO2 is or what their, you know, their, their strength or their explosive nature is, whereas we can do that. <laughs> and that, I think, is, is what has been so fascinating to the the sports performance world it's a pretty unique position we're in yeah yeah it's amazing like to to get all that data and obviously you've only been running uh three years now to get all that data we've been running what about six seven years alan and to to have something available like that would be, right. would be a dream um alan do you want to come in i'm putting you a little bit on spot here uh but you this kind of uh analysis that you did with the um with the ufcpi actually inspired some of our data analysis uh with the featherweight boxers al um so yeah. what was the determinants of winning what it takes to win in the featherweight division yeah um i don't so, expect exact numbers by the way because yeah, i'm putting you on spot <laughs> i'm gonna have to pull up the presentation yeah uh, no so i was yeah i was um given a presentation for for bases um on high intensity conditioning for for um boxing and in a, in a few weeks on from from this presentation kid galahad were boxing for the uh ibf featherweight world title against josh warrington 
and so we're trying to pick apart what really it, it took to to win and reverse engineer featherweight performance so at a group of students doing some performance analysis on all the, the featherweight world champions and their recent bouts and their modes of victory, um, their punch activity um, in the preceding moments b before a, a technical knockout or, or a knockout, um, their, their method of, of victory, um, looking at uh, where their activity profiles laid over the, the rounds, what kind of combinations they were throwing um, and things like that. And then trying to merge that into, against or overlay it against Josh Warrington's performances and kind of do almost like, like I said, Duncan, like a gap analysis for where we um, were, were trying to play and position Kid Galahad's conditioning for that particular fight. So we were trying to do a little bit of reverse engineering um, with that small group of, of, of like me and Danny and, and our students and, and try to pick apart um, that elite level performance. But like I say, it's very, it's very difficult when all those boxers are managed by different people around the world. Um, they're in, in different promotional companies. Um, and so we don't have that, that resource available for to us to really do reverse engineering of performance, understand what it takes to win, and then look at where the gaps are in performance. We can only do our, our, our we can only get a best guess really, and do the best we can with with the data and the numbers that we've got. But we, we try to follow a model that's 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 similar to yours and our limited budget and, and resources because we know that's you know that that's what it does take to, to perform at the highest level and what, what it takes to win. And um, yeah, he's just following that template, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's awesome. Kudos to you, man. I mean, it's like I say, at least, at least you're trying to, to do it. I'm not saying at least you're trying, I'm, you're doing a good job of it. it but uh, yeah, I think we as the UFC, let's say the league, you know, we're putting out that information as a league, as a promotion, whereas no other leagues are doing that, you know? So I think that's what's been interesting. But um, yeah, on an individual level, that's what you've got to do. You've got to try and get as close to understanding what determines success. And then where does my fighter match up or is different against some of those characteristics of success? And then that, that drives your tactical decision, right? And then that filters into everything from, okay, if the tactical decision is we're going to we're going to have a pressure fight, you know, we're going to be pushing forwards. All right. Now my energy systems development is, is related to that. And then my fueling for that energy systems development is related. And then you program in all the lines to what is your end point. Whereas often I see a lot, you know, where, you know, here's the system you come to, you know, th this gym or you come to our thing and it's like, this is the system. This is how you're going to train. Well, that's fine. But the system needs to flex at some point because otherwise you get stuck in this black box. And actually the, the, the fight, the evolution of the fight is changing. You know, whether it's rule changes, equipment changes, conditioning strategies are changing. You know, this, this is moving and you're staying in a, in a rigid system. So, you know, you've got to constantly look at how success is, 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 is being achieved, you know, and then match yourself against that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what we were using that information for was in conditioning prescriptions. So obviously, we've I've got my own coaching philosophies. I've got my own um, physiological goals that I want to achieve with certain training strategies. 
but I was aligning them to the goal and the, and the game plan um, and making sure con- his conditioning was underpinning that game plan and, and su- principally supporting sparring. Yeah, that's awesome. Like really, really good. And I, you know, I give you a, a great, great acknowledgement for doing that. that. That's philosophically aligned with what I do or what we try to do here. And, um, you know, it's fantastic to see it, it was beneficial for you. Oh, I didn't win though. <laughs> yeah. Never mind. At the end of the day, nearly won. Putting them in the best position to should have, to yeah, should have won. He nearly won. <laughs> should have. Um, yeah. So what? One of the things that we have done at Boxing Science, we have created a database, and we create our training philosophy from that. So, for example, lower body rate force development that transfers into a punch. So we try and get our boxers to be able to squat heavy and then be able to be as explosive as possible. From this cross-sectional analysis, what kind of KPIs of, of strength did you take from it in terms of your testing? And how did that kind of model the, the strength training approach? Obviously, you're saying about an individual basis, but from a general standpoint, what do UFC and MMA athletes need to do to... to meet the demands of the sport yeah i think this is where we go off on a little bit of a tangent to, to you guys as boxers right yeah. uh, and it's not that i'm i'm, I'm gonna say hey well you, you know you gotta be able to pull three and a half times your own body weight for you to be a world-class fighter i think what what it what it what we find or what we continue to see is the influence of stylistic background and i think stylistic background people coming from wrestling backgrounds look very different to jiu-jitsu fighters look very different to um strikers or you know the younger generation now that are starting mma from day one and just pure kind of generic mma fighters so i think that's what we do with our data and that's how we influence our programming is it really it really defines you know you can really map stylistic background against physical attributes which is you say, oh, no, shit, Sherlock, right? But actually, we want to be intentional to the level of which it's different. So if someone's got a Muay Thai or a kickboxing background, and we know that they, you know, the characteristics of isometric force or you know, lower body strength um, are significantly greater than they currently demonstrate, but their velocities might be off the charts, we've now got a conversation. We've, we, we've got to have this conversation around, are you going to, make your strength your super strength let's say like are we going to continue to pursue this x factor that you bring to the table that makes you a world-class fighter or are we going to pursue low-hanging fruit and because if the fight goes to the ground or someone tries to take you down you don't have the physical attributes to um to 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 deal with that and you know just the fights this weekend just gone um here in vegas there's a couple of fighters that we know and we've worked with and we know um, they didn't have strength level, you know, largely strikers. And we know that there were some strength deficits that we would say, you, you know, you got to be stronger. And yeah. it was quite evident that they just got taken down and taken down and weren't able to, you know, hold off the clinch work. Um, but it comes back to the conversation with the fighter. Like we, we can only create an advi- advice, right? We're going to say, do you want to make your strength your super strength or are we going to try and elevate a limitation? And that's kind of a, a philosophical conversation we try and shape that we try and give efficacy why we would want to do more strength work or why you need you know your your mid thigh pull is only 
you know, 2.7 times your body weight and we need to get that closer to 3.3, which is what we see as a standard for kind of our female athletes, let's say. Um, yeah. that, that's a, that's, we can direct that as much as we want with our strength programming, but they've got to want to go down that, that journey with us, right? And that's kind of our role as, as S&C coaches. It's, it's a conversation comes back to what you know you were saying with your you know the fighter that, that lost your fight you, you, the they're the ones that ultimately have to make the decision about how they want to win the up-and-coming fight now it might be a wrestler versus a wrestler now what what are we are those physical attributes now null and void or do you want to try and do something a little bit different to create a, a new angle a new wrinkle to what you're doing or is it a, a kickboxer versus a jujitsu fighter? Now, now they're massively different physiologically from that stylistic background. And I think that's, that's been the power of our data, is really by being able to demonstrate by objective data where someone sits against an opponent and then, or, or against their weight class. And then they either shit themselves and say, oh, holy crap, I've got to get stronger or I've got to get faster or my conditioning is not on point. I need to you know, get more alactic capacity. Or they go, ah, actually, I'm not bothered about that because I can just take someone's head off with this particular technique that I have and I'm not really going to bother with that bit over there. So that's kind of a, that's where the data comes into our decision-making and programming. And once the fighters decided what they want to do, now we've got objectivity to, to continually check against where they should be. Yeah. Go on. I was just going to... Um, follow on from that in terms of like strength training and, and preparation. Um, I don't know whether you've seen it, Duncan, but I actually tagged you in a post the other day when I'm doing a series of train like a superstar. Yeah. I did the... Uh, remember all those days back in the uh, you know, dirty old gym in Sheffield, Dan, doing the footwork drills. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I've been using them drills for years, but the... What I was going to mention is that I'm looking into a lot of like UFC and MMA athletes preparation and I was watching yesterday George St. Pierre's training yeah. Yeah. and he's doing like a, a lot of gymnastics. Bit of a unicorn yeah. member, not everyone yeah. trains. Yeah, but then obviously, obviously you've got McGregor that does like a lot of like animal flow training. Do you find like a lot of athletes have like these kind of training methods and how do you kind of factor that into the program? No, stand out. It's not the norm. Um, and like I say, it's, you know, whether it's kind of getting in bed with Ego Patel and doing some movement stuff, whether it's George and, um, you know, Christian, who was kind of ahead of the game in terms of George working on gymnastics, doing a lot of pool kind of aquatic pool training and stuff like that. That wasn't the norm and it's still not the norm, I would say. Um, a, lot, a lot of fighters play around with different training techniques, training modalities. And remember, we've got different backgrounds, right? We've got guys that have come through collegiate wrestling programs here in America that have got really robust technique on, on you know, Olympic lifting and weightlifting techniques. We've got other people that have ne- you know, don't believe in any external resistance and just do body weight circuits. We've got you know, a big kind of CrossFit mentality where you know, it's just smash it up every time. So we see everything and in between. So we've got to embrace what they want to do. You know, any training that someone is compliant to is the best training. All right. What we then need to do is, is build on that, educate and build on what they want to do, what they see value in. So, you know, a lot of guys are doing underwater aquatic breath holds and kind of apnea training right now for hypoxic conditioning, um, which is, which is growing in our community. 
just because of the nature of the jujitsu component of, of our sport and kind of the clinch work and, you know, what that sustained breath hold and um, hypoxic kind of isometric work of jujitsu, what that does, how you simulate that and how you can um, develop it in training versus, you know, George, a lot of people look at George and, and Christian, what they were doing back in the day and, and they, they emulate, you know, they try to emulate it. Um, but it's not the norm, I would say. It's not like a lot of our guys are doing, you know, parallel bar. Watching George Sempier on the parallel bars alone is impressive. You know, this is a karate fighter. Um, so yeah, it's 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 impressive what he did. But every now and again, you you get um, you know new direction, innovation, and that you know our sport of MMA, perhaps more than any I've I've been around, is is about innovation and and creating new methods to to get a competitive advantage, and that's where these things come from. That, that, also, also an understanding like George again saw himself as a professional athlete not just a fighter like the lifestyle of, of a professional athlete all the different components that we're talking about you know really embraced that you know health well-being injury you know reduction and all those types of things I think all, all that we've talked about so far and particularly answer that last last question there Duncan um Tom we've been talking a lot about data making objective decisions but also talking about um, new concepts in, in emerging areas and um, the handbook as well um, and I've seen some very nice flow diagrams that you've created on, on, on systems and, and processes and we've just been talking about individualizing programs I'm just wondering how much um, do you use the models that that you've created how much flex do you have in those systems and processes but and and do you sometimes need to investigate new and emerging areas or are there any new and emerging areas of for example conditioning that you see in a coming into play now yeah i mean it's a really good question alan um we you know we, the the theory and the you know the processes that we put in place we absolutely you know we absolutely utilize not just kind of theory and then we just ditch the theory that that's our mantra that's our philosophy same as you you're talking about you know you and Danny are talking about you, what you do um so you, you've got to have an approach you've got to have something that you believe in and ours is very much built around um objectivity and intentional you know intentionally targeting physiology it's an adaptation led programming strategy um now if you don't know how you're influencing the adaptation then you know that that doesn't sit well with us. So that that's that's our approach. That's our philosophy. Um, does do is there a ton of innovation going on here? Yeah, we we we're trying to be creative. We're trying to learn new things as a you know a, a, alongside our kind of standard day to day what we're doing. And um, so that's always spinning in the background, and that's everything from instrumented mouth guards where we can look at head impacts and you know taking away. You know, characterizing you know like a like a gps unit in soccer but doing it through instrumented mouthpieces and things like that so we get player loads you know that that's kind of an innovation project we've got going on at the minute nutritional factors where we're creating um you know different blends of supplements for you know post-fight um in concussion mitigation strategies where we're looking at energy delivery to the brain and then um, you know inflammatory reduction and all these different things so yeah we've always got things we're interrogating the sport and we're trying to look at new methods um, but we've then got a core approach right now that we implement coming back to you know some of the flow diagrams that 
that that's what our team believes. That's what our staff believe in. You know, we're, we're on a big kick right now around, you know, lad, concurrent training because that's what our sport is. You know, what is concurrent training beyond just, you, you know, your classic Harris paper of, you know, resistance training over here and endurance training over here. That's, that's a little bit rudimental for our sport. Like that's not as simple as that. We've got concurrent training between a lactic and glycolytic that, that sits, you know, your red zone, heart training stuff is, is bang on you know just in terms of that's a concurrent challenge with a divergent physiology and what are we doing to manage that so you know we're, we're really starting to piece together what mma is and what mma training should be um under the umbrella of efficiency because that's that's the skill of our sport as well is like you've got all these different training attributes that you need to put into your program how do you do that efficiently we haven't got time to be doing redundant training. Um, so how can we maximize the potential of all these things under a, a training system and be targeted? And then that again comes back to, well, if we're going to be targeted, we need to know this reverse engineering process of what's your gap analysis and what are you trying to target? So it all meshes in together. I wouldn't say right now we're, we're doing anything crazy, crazily different from interval training or hip training um, you know, activating mitochondrial biosynthesis through, you know, high intensity intervals versus long, slow kind of prolonged work. That's kind of a given, you know, we're, we're not really moving the needle too much there, but what we're really doing is how do you package it for our sport is I think the, the revolutionary stuff that we're getting into. That's wicked. So yeah, that's kind of what, what Danny um, decided quite a long time because it's, it's literally just just me and Danny working on on boxing science and there's there's, there's so many avenues and, and lines of research that that we could have gone down um, but there's so many things that that we do know do we really need to know that much more about interval training well not really but do we need to know more about how we apply interval training in this particular athlete in this particular situation with these constraints well, yes, we do. And that's where we, we use the research, we use the, the literature to, to make informed decisions about our athletes on, on that particular level. Just on um, concussion, um, Duncan, ha, have you got to the point of, of, of trying to investigate concussion and, and quantify that level or magnitude of, of concussion at all? Is there any technology that you're using there? Because we've, I, I was working on a research project last year where I was scanning retinas and we were looking at the, the choroid, which is being reported as the most metabolically active from a, a physiological point of view, um, region of, of the body with, with the view in, in a few years time after a bit more research of, of trying to look at whether or not changes or, or changes in the thickness of the choroid or activity of the, the choroid reflects magnitude of concussion mm -hmm. yeah i mean we are absolutely and um, we we have we have an ongoing research study that looks at um cognitive function um from biological markers and um imaging um of the brain um with our fighters both you know currently um currently fighting and retired fighters as well. So we can look at an attrition rate across the kind of fighter life cycle. Um, so yeah, we, we, we've had that going a little while now. 
Um, but we're bringing online via the PI some pretty cool, um, you know, new technology stuff, which I can't go into too much because it's, you know, I've signed NDAs and stuff like that. But again, looking at instrumented mouth guards of trying to profile impacts and things like that. Because again, we want to make the fight within the parameters of the rules as, as safe as possible for our fighters, right? It's, we training and, and managing that within the non-competition environment is a critical aspect as well. So, you know, looking at, um, you know, some new technology where we can get, um, you know, infrared measures of heart rate and pressure and temperatures, and then obviously accelerometry and gyroscope activities around head impacts and the nature of different head impacts, being able to classify those and then overlay kind of VR um, assessment of um, cognitive function. Um, so using some VR technologies um, for a diagnostic alongside the, the, the accumulation of data showing, let's call it load characteristics, I'd say. That, that's, we're moving down those avenues now, uh, which is very exciting for us. Um, and again, just represents, you know, our commitment to athlete health and, and athlete well-being. You know, the, let's say the, the, the white elephant, you know, the elephant in the room of, of any combat sport is, is sparring and how much sparring you do. You know, is, is two days enough? Is three days too much? Is, you know, is doing it three days for three weeks in a row too much? Or is it, you know, take a week off in the middle? All this type of stuff is, we, nobody knows, right? Nobody knows. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence from the fight community absolutely they've been doing this for years and years and years right how they feel and how the fighters feel but by being able to put data against that and really objectively um demonstrate what it's doing or how you should manage that load um it's something we're really interested in doing yeah i won a podcast of the week it were mainly it weren't coaches it were um it were like kind of podcasters media and one of the subjects were how much should, a, should an athlete spar? What are our opinions on sparring? And they all had different opinions. And talking about different coaches, it's it's all it's all more or less like a matter of opinion and, and personal experience at the moment. And to get more research on it would be massive for not only MMA but for boxing as well. Yeah, we're we're definitely excited about it. And like I say, hopefully in the not too distant future we'll we'll be able to put something more concrete out around, you know, the, the characteristics of, of head impacts and, um, you know, cognitive assessment, those types of things. So the, the, the UFC, you know, we're, we're in a combat sport. The, the, one of the side effects or the, you know, the consequences of our sport is, is TBI concussion. You know, if you're knocked mm -hmm. out, it's concussion, right? So we're not shying away from it and quite the opposite. We're, we're investing a significant amount of money, for research and biological research with the Cleveland Clinic. And we've been committed to that for five, six years now. And then we're bringing online new technologies um, to try and gain insight in, in our world-class fighters because we want to protect our assets. That's, that's what we're about is the fighter are the, the asset and um, you know, we want to maximize their longevity in our company. And um, you know, that, that's where it all comes from. Well, over the last like five or ten minutes, you mentioned a lot about optimizing performance and then optimizing the safety of the sport as well. And yeah. something that is obviously can optimize performance and make sure that it's safe is the weight cut. And you know, MMA, there's been a lot of publicity about like kind of extreme weight cuts. Obviously, the UFC have made like significant steps to making that more safe and effective. Can you explain some of the stuff that you've 
put in place since the Performance Institute launched in 2017? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's one of the main things when we got on board, you know, when we opened up our, our, our doors and we got on board with, the, you know, what, what the, the fight community is doing. It's certainly something we want to want to give more efficacy to the approach. You know, we, you know we're in a weight class sport and, um, yeah. you know, the, that, that, that's part and parcel of what our fighters have to go through. But if they're going to be cutting weight, we want to make sure it's done in the most appropriate fashion and the, the safest and healthiest fashion possible. Um, we want to make sure that their rebound is done effectively so that it can optimize their performance post-weight cut. Um, and we also, to some extent, want to support athletes make decisions around weight classification and which weight class they should be in. And again, our data is, is something that is, is a goldmine to be able to support that kind of conversation. So, yeah, we, we've done a lot in the with, you know, our diet our dietitians and our nutrition team have done a significant amount of work in trying to influence the events. Um, we've brought on board kind of meal delivery companies. So now we can, um, uh, you know, we can deliver meals up to eight weeks in advance of a fight and, and take care of uh, a fighter's kind of holistic dietary requirements where we can manage it and get ahead of the, get ahead of the weight descent. We um, have an executive chef now that goes to, you know, every single pay-per-view event and kind of cooks meals, every meal in a fight week for fighters. So it's just, removing that requirement from their consideration you know normally you go to jacksonville or whatever like where, where am i going to get my next meal from what yeah. i eat well now you we, we've got a performance institute staff chef that is prepping all the meals on site is delivered to their rooms and it's taken off the agenda do you know what i mean that's been a massive influence um we, we service 22 of the 41 fights we have a year something like that and we've just brought another executive chef online so we've expanded you know, we now have two chefs that come under our umbrella. Um, so that's a huge influence. Three years ago in year one, um, so 2017 to 18, we had about 41 missed weights um, in that year. And we had five fights cancelled due to weight-related issues. Um, in the second year, we had about 20, um, 26 missed weights and only two oh, cancelled outs. And then this last year, we had 19 missed weights um and, uh, and zero cancelled bouts so you know in the world we 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 work with about 80 percent of every fight card now on on the, the weight management and the dietary side of feeding um there's obviously still other companies out there and and, and you know people providing services to fighters um so right, right now it's not exclusive but um our track record is 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 very very good um, and again, it's because we have a holistic approach to the whole weight descent, everything from, you know, the, the S&C and the nutrition, 8, 10, 12 weeks prior to a fight, throughout your whole weight descent where we can manage and monitor that into a fight week, which is like the, the last mile of a marathon is the most critical, right? And really nailing down what they're doing there, making sure that they um, hit the hit the scales effectively, and then really working on supplementation and electrolytes, and you know re refueling and the rehydration strategies as well, which is so so critical um, for our guys weighing in 24 hours before the fight. Yeah, the things like saying about the the chef being there, that's a massive thing. Um, you know, I've been all over. I've been in um, Chicago, been to Japan. I've done a fight in Peterborough. And it's always a challenge to to make sure that the they get 
Peterborough, Tokyo, and and uh, Chicago. Peterborough's <laughs> getting some props there, mate. Jeez. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, the most impressive that, I, that I've done was in Japan. Um, can you believe it that everything was in Japanese and nothing in English? Can you imagine that? <laughs> but uh, we got there, and I was expecting to be like at least something like being translated to English. Everything in Japanese. We're going round, and I got some chicken, and that was just awful. Yeah. And I actually asked the uh, the waitress and the waiters to see whether they could cook something in the back. They couldn't understand what I was saying. Um, even when they understood, they were like very abiding by the rules. So yeah. I'm like thinking, what are we going to do for this athlete? And then we were walking, and we found a a British pub in the middle of Yokohama and they were down these down these stairs who were underground as well went down and there's all like kind of British memorabilia all over the wall and this guy um, from Bristol been living there 30 or 40 years and he had um, fish and chips on the menu but the fish was fresh and they did the battle themselves so like we could have the fresh fish and we actually went into his kitchen, got went to market, got some veg, and we mm. did we we cooked in there. If it weren't for that British pub, yeah, <laughs> we, we'd have yeah. been in trouble. That's the beauty of what we can do now. We're sending a chef to you know New Zealand, yeah. to Brazil, to you know some of these places where you know language and going to a supermarket is really hard for a fighter to figure yeah. out what they're doing. Now that's all taken care of by our our support structure, which is free of charge for any of the UFC fighters on the fight card. So it's a game changer. But again, why are we doing it? Why are we making that investment? Well, because we want to make sure that we minimize the risk of missed weights. And um, we, we, we've had over 50% um, reduction in three years in, in missed weights um, because of our, our support. So you know, we're on the right track for sure with that. Yeah, UFC, it just sounds like a an amazing company to be involved with from from a, a personal standpoint like what have been the the highlights i'm sure that there's been a few exciting times over the last few years yeah i mean it's it, it's hugely exciting it remains to be excited i mean listen just walking into a brand new world-class facility on day one was like yeah. into aladdin's cave right it's you know this is this is amazing but you know the, the team the team around us is 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 awesome you know the the, the staff that we have um the melting pot of ideas of being around professionals that you know just every day challenge each other but are totally aligned to the same mission to you know to interrogate and push and challenge each other but to do it for the greater good of our whole infrastructure um is awesome and then yeah, Shang, opening Shanghai, opening our facility in China was was a really cool kind of, you know, 18 months into it, we were already opening a 93,000 square foot facility in Shanghai, China. Like, this is crazy. We've only just opened in Vegas. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the likelihood is that we'll have footprints in other parts and other territories of the world soon. So, yeah, the, the UFC is, a, is an entertainment company, you know, by trade, but it's a, it's a really dynamic and exciting company to be around. And, um, yeah, just super humbled and privileged to be here, enjoying every day. And, um, you know, the team that we have here and, and also in Shanghai are, are just awesome people and they're really good professionals. So it's exciting shape, you know, continuing to shape the sport of MMA um, and hopefully see people see value in what we're doing. And, and like I say, in moving forward to the year when we, 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 we're going to be launching um, 
some pretty significant digital aspects to our business where people have open access to information and also you know some some paid kind of things that you can get more higher level insight to as well um and and you know webinars where you'll be able to interact with our staff and you know those types of things are all going to be coming online here soon so uh we're excited about what that holds for the future as well sounds amazing well i think that con concludes it and and uh, finishes on a, a brilliant point uh thanks very much for your time hopefully yeah. We can transition into some more normal time soon, and we see the UFC uh, like back on top, big audiences, big fights, and yeah. we can't wait to see what's going to come out of the UFC Performance Institute. Cool. Well, listen, I, I appreciate you know chatting to you guys. You know, I, I always big fans of what you guys are doing back at home there. So uh, keep up the good work, and uh, yeah, just again humbled by the opportunity to to chat and share and uh, you know speak to, to you guys on the podcast so thanks so much we appreciate it Duncan yeah, thanks thank you very much all right <laughs> darling a little review how good with that see if I'm Duncan so good do you know what it feels like the UFC performance institute and Duncan's program has been around for 15 20 years yeah doesn't it it, it, it just feels so wide-ranging and encompassing in all the aspects of athlete support it's just it's hard to believe that all he's been set up and run to such a world-class level world leading level within about three years yeah the the athletes are given the the best possible opportunity to achieve and to, be, to put on amazing performances. And you watch like UFC fights now. Like, I remember, I remember um, like talking to someone like years and years ago. I th um, this is how long ago it were. I, were um, I just had my theory, my driving theory. And I randomly talking to someone on a bench um, in the middle of Sheffield because I had the UFC game. And I said, oh, I prefer, I prefer boxing is too much. Too much grappling and wrestling, a bit low intensity for me, like UFC. Yeah. And obviously now that it's it's progressed to a level where it's just like the fights are absolutely amazing, and a lot of it is down to their the obviously the the technique getting better, but their their physical attributes are just outstanding. And when I've been doing, I mentioned it in the um, in the podcast, it weren't a shame, uh, weren't a shameless like kind of plug for the Train Like a Superstar series on Instagram. If you are listening to this or watching this, you need to get over to my Instagram, watch the Train Like a Superstar, watching boxing training, and then watching MMA athletes. MMA for in terms of physical preparation on another level. I mentioned George St Pierre. Obviously, he's a, a standout athlete but there's like there's loads of others like that I just think there's no way that I could do it never mind a, a boxer doing strength and conditioning so yeah so I think like UFC that you know that's why it's accelerated to the top of one of the most popular sports yeah it's probably the fastest growing one of the fastest growing sports out there is and it all comes down for down to the organization who's driving the organization what what do they want to get out of it? Well, they want high performance. They want exciting fights. 
but they also want to help prepare boxers in the safest way possible and keep them safe from, and uh, and keep them safe from from harm and uh, and all this is much like our approach is wrapped up in safety and preparation and doing things the right way to to ensure their athletes are, are prolonging their careers but you're also getting that excitement out of it as well just brilliant fantastic so yeah so that's the end of the podcast thanks everybody for watching or listening if you're not a subscriber to our youtube or podcast channels yet please hit the subscribe button and also if you want to find out more about the ufc performance institute's training methods we have a range of different workshops that duncan himself and uh, Bo Sandoval, who is a strength conditioning coach at the UFC Performance Institute, have uh, delivered uh, for the Boxing Science membership. Uh, you can sign up for free, uh, a seven-day free trial, then it's £8.99 a month. You've got a range of different workshops, massive exercise library, and also you've got S&C weekly workouts. But in these workshops that Bo and Duncan do, you get a greater insight into the training methods of the UFC Performance Institute. Okay, guys, thank you very much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Yeah.